Welcome to EdSpark 21, the podcast from Battelle for Kids, dedicated to capturing conversations and spreading the word to accelerate the realization of 21st century deeper learning for every student. In this episode, Battelle for Kids CEO Karen Garza talks with Jeff Brown, Superintendent of Granville Exempted Village Schools, and Mario Basora, Superintendent at Huber Heights City Schools. Every month at Battelle for Kids, we host a network of 30 innovative superintendents to collaborate on 21st century learning. And I have the privilege to be in the room with them, listening to them, learning with them, and being inspired by them. During this year's kickoff meeting, I pulled two of these superintendents away from the action for some quick conversations about why 21st century learning is personally important to them, what progress we've seen, and what education leaders across the country need to be doing to prepare students to thrive in our ever-changing world. First, here's my conversation with Jeff Brown from Granville Exempted Village Schools. You are considered definitely a champion of deeper learning or 21st century learning, however you define it. I mean, really essentially transforming educational experiences for all kids so they're well-equipped to thrive in this rapidly changing, complex world. You've been a champion of that work for a long time. So tell us why you champion, why you think this is work, this work is important and, and why you have, have defined your leadership and your career around this kind of work. So it, it's interesting because I think there's been a little bit of an evolution to my career where uh, there was a time where I, I would consider myself a data wonk, where mm-hmm. I, I really, the data drove everything. And, and I didn't necessarily think of the um, the, what, what I would call softer side of the equation and mm-hmm. the relationships and the re- relevance. And I, it was all about the research best practice and high leverage instructional strategies. And that's evolved to where I'm, I'm including both sides of the equation now. Deep, rigorous academic content with the necessary 21st century skill set to get at deep learning. And part of that journey for me personally, was when my own child was going through high school and seeing some of the disconnect between the traditional education paths and kind of what her notion as as a curious high school mm-hmm. student was about learning and and really looking at what is the end game and what, am, what are we trying to cultivate um, as an educational organization as far as outcomes. And I thought, wow, our view has become very myopic as mm-hmm. far as our definition of success. And so just broadening that conversation, uh, quite honestly, has been reinvigorating for myself as an educator. Um, and for my team, I know that they've said the same thing, but it also um, translates into better outcomes for kids and better options for kids. And so everybody was winning through that kind of learning process. So you've been engaged in this work for a while uh, in your district. Kind of one of the things that you've seen as evidence of, wow, okay, I, this is this is taking root, mm-hmm. and this is having the effect. And you may not be there exactly just yet to mm-hmm. the end goal, and, and maybe there's not a definite end goal. But what gives you, what makes you excited about, wow, this this work is really having a positive impact so on students and teachers. I could probably give you thirty examples. Okay, but the thing that really has been surprising to me is I have had probably ten to fifteen students over the last year come back and schedule appointments with me 
to talk about their experiences in Granville schools and how it prepared them for uh, college and and even the workforce. And so they just sit down and they start usually by saying, I just want to share with you what I'm doing right now, whether it's, you know, participating in a master's program in New Zealand around, you know, policies for the environment or, you know, a design, um, a fashion design uh, program that a student is engaging in. The connections that students are making to their passion and and what they want to pursue and how we've been able to position them better through not only instructional practices but also broadening the definition of success where maybe those students wouldn't have, wouldn't have found that opportunity in our previous, you know, type of mm-hmm. educational system has really been the most rewarding aspect to me. So and they're reinforcing the things that we're trying to do. So it's they're saying things that were very intentional moves on our part um, that really uh, resonated with them. A, get, a perfect example of that is, you know, talking about project-based learning where students are engaging in pro- projects that are, you know, something that they're interested in. There's a level of authenticity to them and how that has positioned them well going into either a workforce environment or a project that they're engaging in uh, college, they feel very well prepared to handle the failure, to be resilient, um, to be adaptable. And they, they use that language with, with me. And to me, that is just a byproduct of what we're trying to do every single day. So tell us a little bit. That's exciting. I'll tell you at the end of the day, if your students can articulate the difference, those experience—I mean, that's pretty. Sa- has to be very satisfying oh, for you, Jeff. It's fantastic. That, that's, that's why we do this. Well, work. and I, I just love hearing what our students yeah. are going to do. Yeah, um, absolutely. And they're passionate about it. So, tell us a little bit about kind of your observation about the the or the response of your educators to this work, and maybe your broader community. Yeah. So, I, I think f- the initial reaction to the portrait of a graduate work and and kind of broadening the definition of success really was not a difficult sell um, to our our teachers. They see a disconnect between, you know, maybe what is advocated for in the accountability system and promoted um, through the local report card and, and what they view as the necessary success skills for students. So there's an initial agreement and un- general acceptance. And I think that's been universal in just about every stakeholder group that I've engaged with, whether it's students, staff, um, Chamber of Commerce, Rotary, Kiwanis, you name it. Uh, there's been universal agreement that there needs to be a, a blending of the deep academic rigorous content with the 21st century skill sets. Um, so the challenge is after that initial agreement, how do you then move them to change of classroom practice? And, and that's a little bit more challenging um, because there's a little bit of risk taking involved, a little bit of vulnerability. You know, it's, it's always, I know as a, as a teacher, it was always frustrating to me when someone said, be creative. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm not creative. (laughs) Uh, But that we're giving them time and space to be in that, in that uncomfortable place for a little bit and supporting them through that process, matching that pressure with support 
so that they are willing to take risks and do things some different ways and fail and then learn from that and reflect on that, which is exactly what we're trying our, to get our students to do. So a lot of the connections to the adult learning that's taking place connects to the student learning. Along these same lines with, you know, how do you cultivate and grow your own leadership? You know, I, I feel like our cadre of superintendents are such learners themselves. So tell us a little bit about how you think the the network has really um, helped you think about this work and maybe uh, your colleagues as a whole in the, in the network. Well, I, I think sometimes when you get into the level of a superintendency, people expect that you have all the answers. And so it can be a lonely place. And when you find a network that you have the ability to um, have open and honest dialogue and discussion around topics that, you know, other people are bringing different perspectives in uh, because of their experiences, everyone grows. And and you create that safe space for um deep, rich conversations that then you can take back to your organization. And I wouldn't be where I am um, in my career if, it, if I hadn't had that at critical points in my career. And uh, this network is absolutely critical to the success of not only Jeff Brown, but also Granville Schools and all of our students. And my hope is that that also scales so that uh, other superintendents have the benefit of that learning network where they can explore ideas and options for their students in a safe place um, that's, you know, well-researched because, mm-hmm. you know, you are providing that that information resource for us. Because it's, it's hard to do that work outside of the typical day job. Um, and so having the ability to access resources and have information delivered to you that actually makes a ton of sense and um you know you've you've vetted it at some level is absolutely essential and we do we do take that responsibility very seriously here at Battelle for kids because we know every superintendent in our networks and you know national network and our state network could do this work themselves it's just they sometimes very often have limited time to do it Mm -hmm. and so we feel like it's our responsibility to curate and cultivate you know develop some of those resources and tools you know we always say and i know you agree with this that the role of the superintendent is so important in this work because it, it requires such deep transformation that if the superintendent is not championing this at the highest level, it's unlikely to happen. But we also know that superintendents cannot do it alone. Um, and and but talk with us a little bit about what you th- why you think the role of the superintendent um, is important in this work particularly. So I just want to start with the level of honesty that we've had. Uh, I think sometimes superintendents don't view themselves as the instructional leader of the organization, um, and they outsource that to a CAO or an assistant superintendent. But if the superintendent doesn't, you know, live and breathe the mission and vision and and uh, instructional leadership of the district, then the initiatives will fail. The implementation will not be uh, deeply rooted, and so it this work could fall by the wayside if there isn't that level of engagement. So I I think it's absolutely critical. And, you know, as a superintendent, it's also the exciting part of the work, you know, creating that culture of inquiry around what we do and how we do it really leads to continuous improvement. And if we don't have that type of uh, perspective, then I think we're going to um, 
maybe maintain status quo or the worst thing that we could do is not meet our students' needs. I, I so agree. And, um, you know, you and I both have the opportunity to talk about this quite a bit and, and certainly with other colleagues, and that is, you know, how do you want to define your superintendency? And, you know, it's so easy to get caught up in the day-to-day, you know, minutia or, you know, this, you know, event and that event or this building project or this budget um, I mean, I feel like in, in the, my previous district's budgets were everything. You know, we mm-hmm. were fighting always Absolutely. seemingly for the money and resources our school system needed. But I was very careful not to let that define my leadership and my superintendency because our core work is the learning. And so talk a little bit Absolutely. about kind of the focus of superintendents. I always say, what do you want your legacy to be? Mm-hmm. The buildings are, are great. You know, the financial status, certainly that has to be handled but I know most superintendents want the legacy to be the quality of educational experience that children get in the system. Absolutely. For me, it, it really, I, I look at it as almost three pillars. You know, the first pillar is really um, creating that culture of inquiry that I mm-hmm. talked about earlier, where um, the organization is curious about what we're doing to meet the needs of students and how we're doing that and, and what are the best practices, because this is a craft. Mm-hmm. And, and so we have to c- continually refine what we're doing. And you can only refine if you're asking the right questions. The second pillar is building capacity. You mm-hmm. know, our job is to build capacity of everyone in the organization to align to whatever it is that we view as that high leverage instructional strategy to get um, the greatest result for students. And results is very Oh, a very mm-hmm. broad definition, um, probably not what most people would think of as results. Um, and then the third piece, kind of getting at the legacy, is I want to build the systems and structures to em- endure beyond my tenure in any organization that I'm in. So, you know, what are the structures that support building capacity? What are the structures that support um, a culture of inquiry? And if you create those, then you can walk away from an organization and what you've done as far as implementation will continue. You know, the worst thing that can happen is for a superintendent to leave and those things not Mm -hmm. continue, Um, especially if they're they're the right things for kids. Well, we've kicked off today our third year of our SOAR Learning Network and just want to get your observations or insights around not only kind of what this morning felt like, but just kind of what are your hopes for this year as we move forward? Well, when I when I sat down today, I was reflecting on the first two years and the journey and, you know, kind of referencing that notion of a learning partner and where we started and where we are now and the growth and evolution that we've seen in the conversation um, because I think this is somewhat uncharted territory as we go through and work with individual districts. Um, but looking back, I'm just so impressed with the level of engagement, honesty, and um, intellectual rigor of the superintendent network. Um, and then today, to jump right back into that work with you know all the work that superintendents have been doing in their districts, that kind of build their their understanding of where they want to go next. And so I, I feel like there's a level of superintendents leaning into this work and really getting excited about it because they're starting to see the benefits of it locally. 
Well, Jeff, thank you so much for your leadership in this work, both here in our state but across the nation. Um, you are have been uh, instrumental in the way we've been thinking about the work and helping us lead it. So thank you for being our, our wonderful learning partner oh, and, Karen, and I friend in this work. Yeah, I can't thank you enough for giving me the opportunity to learn with you. Great. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. I also spoke with Mario Basora of Huber Heights City Schools. Like Jeff, Mario also advocates for encouraging educators to take risk and giving them permission to fail in the ultimate pursuit of helping students. We join our conversation in progress. And so what do you see as progress that we are making or aren't making as a nation as it relates to public education as a whole? Gosh, that's a really good question. I, I want to be as optimistic as possible right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are pockets of excellence happening across the country. Um, from my limited knowledge and my perspective, I know about uh, some of the great work happening in states like Kentucky um, and states like New Hampshire. Um, and, you know, all over the country, there are pockets of really great uh, innovation happening in school districts and in schools um, and daring leadership that really is making a, a profound difference in the lives of kids. Uh, some of these state legislatures and governments have been able to um, get changes in assessment practices and, and accountability within their states that, you know, and, and get federal approval mm -hmm. for it. Um, we've tried to do that work in Ohio over time and, and been largely unsuccessful as local school districts historically. Um, but I think as we continue to move forward, I, I do believe the new ESSA intentions, at least, were to uh, grow and make progress in these areas. But I still think that, as that's been interpreted and practiced, um, change is, is, is difficult. And so, you know, you talk about the change at the top and how important that is from superintendents. To be perfectly honest, we need that change from the top in terms of the Federal Department of Education and our state departments of education to really shift um, our thinking and, and leadership around this. There are states that are doing great, great work, and I think we're seeing some progress. I, um, so I'm happy and excited mm -hmm. about that, but we got a really long way to go still. I agree with you. I think ESSA does present an, a great opportunity for states to rethink kind of their focus for education. Uh, sadly, what I'm seeing in some states, I think if they don't know what it could be, they tend to, you know, that, that vacuum exists, and so they just apply their the same models that they've always known. And so sadly, some states are just, you know, kind of just doubling down on what they've been doing for the last 20 to 30 years versus a complete, you know, maximizing this opportunity to re-envision uh, which is, you know, you mentioned a couple of states that are doing that. I uh, wish more and more were doing that as well. Yeah, when you think about equity specifically, I mean, that's sort of the central response, you know, when folks talk about changing. Well, we need to make sure equity. Kids can't read. We have to make sure they're they're reading at higher and higher and, and levels. And, and, you know, we get all of that. Obviously, that's, that's, that's important. Um, but I think it's being used as an excuse to not change and not to move forward and uh, progress with those kids. Because as we stated earlier, national assessments have not shifted over the years. At some point, we have to come to the recognition that what we're doing and what we've been doing since No Child Left Behind is not working, <laughs> mm -hmm. and that we need something radically different. Uh, not even by the, it's not even working by the benchmarks that were set then. Mm -hmm. you know, now that we're thinking about benchmarks for 21st century learning and deeper learning and the skills kids actually need to be successful in mm -hmm. 2019 after they graduate from high school and college, it's not. It's not even coming mm -hmm. close to reaching those 
those goals and those benchmarks. So we're not meeting the benchmarks from 2003, right. and we're not meeting the benchmarks uh, for deeper learning in 2019. And so we have to shift what we're thinking and what we're doing. And uh, it all comes down to assessment in many ways. I think that's a huge piece of this. What we measure, we will get. And we have to really get serious about uh, and have a strong conversation about measurement and assessment in our country and how we assess the kinds of what, what do we want to assess, which is where the portrait of the graduate mm-hmm. come in, comes in, and then how do we assess that? And that's that's what it's all about. I just think we have to take it to uh, take it to scale on a much larger level across the country and and give some flexibility. If anything, if, if we can't do it across the country, mm-hmm. at least maybe let's provide some flexibility to districts and and give them opportunities to 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 shift and change what we're doing. I so agree. In fact, I've, I've written on this topic because I feel so passionate about it. But and that is shared um, accountability and equally valuing local accountability and state accountability. You know, right now, our you know the the kind of the model is state accountability is everything, and there there's a way to shape local accountability that in some cases maybe even more meaningful to communities than what's happening at the state level. Uh, but to do this kind of work while we're talking about deeper learning and 21st century learning, there has to be some kind of model where local accountability can exist, I think, right. uh, coexist in a, in a strong way with state accountability. I, I kind of think we have to decentralize our efforts in some ways. You know, I think we are, we have this, so one of the, I went to a national um, forum with state leaders uh, across the country and it was part of the uh, innovation lab, innovative lab network and what was what was really fascinating and eye opening to me when i visited that a few years ago with folks from the department of education in ohio is that a lot of these other states that are being very innovative um their central focus is on uh providing incentives for um for innovation within their school districts and so figuring out ways to incentivize schools to innovate within their systems within their school districts and then trying to remove as many barriers to innovation as possible removing rules uh you know laws whatever it is to mm-hmm. open up for new um innovation and so a lot of those 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 state leaders are doing that in ohio sadly i feel like we are more of a compliance state and we are all about compliance and following the rules and when you have more compliance, you have less innovation. And so it's no secret that in Ohio, we don't have the innovation because we're all about compliance. So how do we promote innovation in this state um, and reduce sort of the the, the stranglehold of compliance and and maybe begin to really trust our districts and our teachers uh, Mm -hmm. to do what's best for kids in their own communities? I'm all about accountability. We just need to make sure we're accountable for what our communities think we should be accountable for and what we know is right in 2019. You mentioned earlier that, you know, despite all these efforts, test scores have not changed that much. You know, have, haven't dramatically changed, yet the effect it's had on teaching and learning in our schools. Talk about your impressions of that effect on our educators as a whole across wow. the country. It's been huge, you know. I, I think, so here's, when I first was in Yellow Springs and I was working with a group of teachers on trying to change our work and we were exploring um, the deeper learning principles and project-based learning. And I said, we're all going to do project-based learning this year. And everybody was excited about it. And then I said, we're all going to do at least two projects and we're going to commit to it together. And everybody got a little silent. And there was one teacher who was afterwards who approached me courageously and said, you know, Mario, this is all fine and good. But this year, for the first time ever, my evaluation is going to be tied to these assessment results. 
And honestly, I can't change because I know if I change to the model you're asking me to change to, my test scores will go down. And he believed that to the heart of his heart. You know, every, every, every uh, fiber in his body believed it. And when you talk to teachers one-on-one, and, and overwhelmingly, teachers will say that they believe in, in the idea of innovating, in the idea of um, integrated content, and in the idea of uh, questioning and, and, and following kids' curiosities and passion and letting that drive their work as educators, that that really is at the heart of learning. And having, and having fun while learning, you know, mm-hmm. and it's important. But what we've done is we've sort of, uh, in the interest of, of data analysis and, and accountability, uh, we've essentially taken all the, uh, the natural way people learn, which is in an integrated fashion, and we've separated it in segments and then tested each individual subject uh, and then evaluated it and then, and then, you know, published the scores publicly in a shaming fashion. And... Um, Joy you used Ito, it, use it to sort and rank. Sort and rank, yeah. Joy Ito, the uh, director of MIT Labs, uh, said that if you, you want innovation, you have to lower the cost of failure. And so we are not going to be able to be innovative in Ohio unless we significantly lower the cost of failure and create a place where we fail forward, where we have a chance to really um, take risks and enough risk for kids that we risk failing and making mistakes, and then we learn from those mistakes, we pick ourselves up and move forward. That's the culture of innovation at some of the best uh, companies and most successful companies in the world right now. That's the, that's the beliefs of, in Google and how they operate, but yet we can, Google, Google can have fail fests uh, once a month on Wednesday nights where people get together and talk about their failures and celebrate them, but in schools we can't do any of that uh, because we are so frightened and scared by the test inadvertently and unintendedly uh, in an effort to really change our schools, our state has actually reinforced the same poor teaching practices that uh, existed 15, 20 years ago uh, in a very traditional classroom. Uh, They want innovation, but what we're measuring actually reinforces um, traditional thinking and didactic uh, top-down teaching and learning. Well, you talked about using failure as a way to accelerate learning. Uh, that is real world, isn't it, as you, as yes. you described? Uh, one final note on kind of what this has done to the profession. We're experiencing today almost a 40% reduction in in young people, bright young people entering the field of education, which is dramatically affecting our pipeline. And I, I believe it's because teachers used to be our number one recruiters. You know, it would encourage students to consider teaching. And, you know, I became a, a educator because I loved the teachers I had, mm-hmm. right? And I wanted to be just like them. My father was also a teacher. I wanted to be just like him. But I think over time, you know, I hear stories time and time again, teachers saying to kids, man, I, I don't become an educator because all it is is about these tests. Do you, do you sometimes hear that sentiment? I do, and it's really disheartening, honestly. Um, I think teaching is the most important profession and the most valuable profession on earth. There's nothing more important than teaching kids. I, I think that is the, uh, the most important work. Unfortunately, the culture in the United States is such that we don't value educators or education, essentially, um, as professionals. And so I think what has happened is we have taken the creativity that existed. So, you know, you talk, we talk about this new idea, these new ideas of deeper learning, but if you go back to pre-proficiency, that's exactly what, what people did. They integrated their, their learning. They yeah. did great instructional units. And constructivism was the way of the day. This is not new. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is back when, you know, it goes all the way back to John Dewey and some of his work. And, and so uh, it's really getting back to our roots. And what we know is important for kids learning. 
I'll tell you, time and time again, before we started doing this deeper learning work uh, in my in my former district, teachers were, you know, upset, you know, just kind of at times uh, sort of anxiety-ridden, struggled, just really frustrated, did not enjoy teaching as much. And they came up with very little creative ideas for teaching and learning. And it was, it was boring to kids and it was boring to teachers. But then when we started to do this work and we gave teachers the freedom to pursue their own passions and the passions of kids as part of their work, and we asked them to find creative ways to tie that to their standards, the amazing creativity that came out of it, the amazing um, work ethic and and absolute commitment to our kids that came out of from teachers was just night and day compared mm-hmm. to previously. Because what we did is we gave teachers an, an opportunity, empowered them to do what they know best, to, to talk about what's interesting to them and important to them and to their kids, and then to really explore it, to pursue it, and to make a difference mm-hmm. and, and do things that are authentic, you know, not just in a book, but in the real right. world. And uh, that, and they've seen the impact of their kids as a result of it and the engagement level going through the roof. And that is what keeps teachers coming back and excited about the work. Um, if we hamstring teachers and we don't give them the professionalism and the freedom and, and trust them and have faith in them to do their work, uh, I think that we just, we'll just end up in the same you know, boat. And, and that's the problem. You know. And I think at, at its core, that's why we're so excited about this work, because we know if we can inspire and, and excite teachers around this work in new ways that we haven't, haven't done in many, many years, um, and also excite kids around the learning I mean, we're going to have profound results and reinvigorate teachers and our students and our broader community around, and re- restore, in some cases, the confidence of our public in our public education system. So you are considered a champion of, of 21st century learning or deeper learning for kids. I mean, really championing that things really need to look different in order to equip our children to be successful in this rapidly changing world. And you've long been a champion of that. And now you've agreed to serve as our chair of our, our cohort, too. So just tell me about why why this is so important to you and why you feel so such a deep level of passion around this work. So I started as a, um, a teacher and a, and a principal. and uh, But when I was a teacher, um, I, I got to a point where I felt like I went into it for a reason to make a difference in the lives of kids. And I really wanted them to be, you know, to grow and, and uh, be successful and, and make for, for, for great reasons. I feel like when I got to schools, though, it was a totally different uh, ball game. So uh, for me, when I became a principal, it was an opportunity to really uh, radically think differently about how systems work, how education works, and maybe try to deliver the kind of education that I felt like I always wanted um, as a student myself. And so I became aware of uh, critical pedagogy and a lot of work within that domain of education. That didn't happen until I was in, in, in the university setting after teaching for several years um, and becoming a principal. So that kind of kicked off my thinking. And then when I got connected with a lot of deeper learning principles and ideas through um, the access point of project-based learning, it was like the perfect marriage of the theory of critical uh, theory uh, with, um, with, with, with deeper learning. And so it was, it was a great chance to, uh, with the practical applications of uh, PBL, and it was a great opportunity to really see that happen in the classroom and in the application of, I think, a theory. And, and, and to me, that was powerful. So that's sort of what got me going. So, you know, now that you've agreed to serve as the chair of this, this network of like-minded school districts that want to go on this journey together, 
to transform education. Kind of what are your hopes for this? You know, first of all, why did you agree to be chair? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then what are your kind of what are your hopes about what we can accomplish together? So I agreed to be chair because I felt like um well, I got a call from a few people, I think, <laughs> of interest. And, uh, you, you got your arm twisted, didn't uh, you? I did get okay. my arm twisted a little bit. But no, it, it's really, um, it was kind of an honor, I think, to hear that from you and to hear from Jeff in that way. Um, and so to me, it seemed like a really great opportunity to make a difference um, in with superintendents across the region. And, and, um, and I heard about some of the great things happening in Cohort 1, and I'm looking for a network like this myself. And I feel like if there's a way that I can be of service even in a leadership role, I think that would be helpful, and I'd, I'd love to, uh, to do that any way I can. So that's kind of why. Now, I'm, I'm really excited about the work of uh, this cohort going forward because, uh, you know, especially after the first few hours today, I, I think it's exactly the kind of work we need to be doing. It's a uh, narrative that I think um, runs counter to the traditional um, sort of thinking around what's, what's, how do we define success for schools, and to me, I think uh, school leaders need to think about the future of education and where we're taking kids. And sometimes um, that takes uh, thinking differently than it does. It always takes th- thinking differently than, mm-hmm. the, than the status quo and the, the general expectations and norms. And so um, having a network to support us with that will make a huge difference. And so I'm excited about that going forward. You, you spoke so eloquently about why things need to change. So why do you think it's so difficult? to change the current system. I mean, mm. I mean, I think we've known for some time that things need to change in the educational experience for for students, and yet it's so slow to change. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Two reasons. I think, first of all, everybody went to school. We all went to school, and we all have images of what a school should look like. And I think uh, some people had great experiences, some people had poor experiences, but really we are so ingrained in what school's supposed to look like, we can't possibly think outside the box as a, as a, as a nation, really, about how schools can look differently. And so uh, we're sort of, our focus is not, uh, is, is very narrow, and we, and we don't have perspective about what's, what's possible beyond our own experience um, as, as students. Uh, I think that the second reason is that for education to change, the people have to change. And so um, in other professions, that's not uh, the same. I, don't, I, don't, I think you have to change people, but really not at the level of, uh, mm-hmm. that we do in education. I mean, our job is all about developing people. That's it. That's what we do. That's true. <laughs> and yeah. in order to develop people, the people who are developing the people need to change their behaviors and practices uh, in significant ways to be able to impact what we're doing with kids. That is exceptionally difficult, um, especially when you think about uh, those who often choose education as a profession are those who probably enjoyed school, had a great experience themselves in the system that we've had for so long. Right. And they often believe that, you know, it worked for me and it's worked for others, and so I know how to do it and it should be able to work mm-hmm. for these kids, uh, as opposed to my experience, which is very different. I didn't like school at all growing up. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I've come at it with the angle of, hey, we need to do things differently because I don't want kids to have the same experience I had in school. I want it to be better for them. So, and then the final question I would ask is, in light of, how you just described how difficult it is to change fundamentally change systems. Talk a little bit about how you see the role of superintendents in leading that transformation. So I, I think superintendents are absolutely critical to to change. I I um 
So I, I'm a little hesitant to talk about this too much because I, I think on the one level, superintendents are absolutely essential. You, you have to have leadership at the top that supports the change, that can lead the vision, that can really uh, promote the work and cross-pollinate across the district. But at the end of the day, um, it comes down to what's actually happening in the classrooms and the building leadership level um, in terms of really making change. And, and ultimately, I think change has to come from teachers um, over time. That It doesn't happen ultimately from the top. It has to be a bottom-up revolution, if you will, to really change what's happening in schools. Because good teachers know that they outlast superintendents nine times out of ten. <laughs> And if they True. sit back and wait, the superintendents will go and be gone, and uh, they'll they'll have a new superintendent with a bunch of new ideas. And so there's a, sort of a sense of cynicism that happens, I think, and rightfully so, uh, because as leaders, we've sort of changed all the time, and we bring in these new creative ideas, and then we change them every year. And, and so uh, it's essential that superintendents as leaders lead with a strong vision and stick with that vision for a long period of time um, and really try to bring teachers in from inception as part of that change process. Because if that doesn't happen, change won't happen. Mario, again, thank you for serving as our chair for Cohort 2 and providing leadership to this important work. And we look forward to our year together. Thank you, Karen. I'm excited mm-hmm. to be here. And uh, thanks for asking me to, to do it. I feel very fortunate that in my role here at Battelle for Kids, I continually get the opportunity to collaborate with so many superintendents, thought leaders, and education practitioners who, like Jeff and Mario, are so clearly personally passionate about helping teachers and helping students. We are all working together to lead important changes so that our nation's children can become lifelong learners and contributors. The EdSpark 21 podcast is a production of Battelle for Kids. Battelle for Kids collaborates with school systems and communities to realize the power and promise of 21st century learning for every student. Go to bfk.org to learn more. Thank you to Jeff Brown and Mario Basora, not only for their participation in this episode of EdSpark 21 and their leadership roles in our SOAR network of visionary leaders, but also for the work they do every day and their commitment to their teachers and students. Other podcasts and blog posts from Battelle for Kids can be found at bfk.org. The music heard in this podcast is On Fire by Sasha Ende, copyright 2019 and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. All other content in this episode of EdSpark 21 is the intellectual property of Battelle for Kids. 